everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 166. I've always been interested in the ways that uh, the most fundamental processes in people's brains, you know, how we see how we interpret information in front of us, all that low-level stuff connects to kind of more high-level, difficult decisions and concepts that we think about and all the usual stuff that we think of as uh, thinking and, you know, going about our lives. So anytime that uh, there's a connection between, um, you know, low-level stuff and high-level stuff in the brain and behavior, that gets me very excited. That's psychologist David Lavari. So my name is David Lavari, and I'm a social psychologist. Uh, I research human behavior, and uh, right now I'm based uh, at Harvard University in the psychology department in the business school there. Earlier this year, Lavari, along with his colleagues Daniel Gilbert, Timothy Wilson, Bo Sievers, David Amadio, and Thalia Wheatley, produced a study that revealed just the sort of thing he loves to research, a connection between the way we process information in general to the way we approach larger phenomena like institutions, social problems, and everything from war to policing to teaching a musical instrument. Lavari and his team found evidence for something they call prevalence-induced concept change. When we set out to change the world by reducing examples of something we have deemed problematic and we succeed, a host of psychological phenomena can mask our progress and make those problems seem intractable, as if we're only treading water when, in fact, we've created the change we set out to make. To understand what this means, we need to build up to the idea by first discussing another idea in psychology called creep. Yeah, so creep is definitely not a term that we came up with. It's a term that's been used for a long time to describe any situation in which kind of um, a concept or a, a set of goals or um, really anything at all kind of grows or ch- uh, shifts its boundary outward over time. In the military, this is called mission creep. When a unit enters a country with a narrow set of goals, over time, the scope of the effort expands to include goals that had never been considered part of the original mission. Or in technology and software development, they call this feature creep. Um, you can start out with a product or a piece of software that does one very narrow thing, like plays songs, 
And then over time, you just inevitably kind of end up adding more and more bells and whistles and features to it that make it uh, slower and uh, it takes longer to come to market and more complicated. A few years ago, a psychologist named Nick Haslam wrote a paper that introduced another form of this phenomenon he called concept creep. The idea that not only do missions and products and software start with narrow goals and then expand in scope over time, but so do ideas, abstractions, and definitions. Concepts, he said, undergo semantic shifts. The boundaries of concepts creep outward over time the more familiar we become with them. And they begin to include a broader range of examples as we begin to notice the signals and the noise. So, for example, um, something that a lot of uh, psychologists study is bullying. It's always something to worry about. And a few decades ago, bullying was mostly considered, you know, the, the, the basic definition of bullying was like, if I pushed you over in the playground, that was bullying. It was physical um, harassment among kids. Concept creep expands in two directions. Horizontally, it encompasses new phenomena that we begin to see as examples of the concept that we didn't see as examples before. And vertically, it creeps downward, encompassing less extreme phenomena that we once didn't think of as examples of the original concept. The category in our minds, in our shared consensus reality, dilates, covering more of our overall conceptual framework than it did in the past. So with bullying, for example, um, bullying now, you can also think about adult bullying in the workplace, or emotional bullying, or cyberbullying. So it's not um, always automatically considered a problem, but it's just uh, uh, the way in which, as Haslam observed, it seems like a lot of these concepts just kind tend to kind of naturally and incrementally grow bigger over time uh, without anyone necessarily trying to do that on purpose. Concept creep is a natural phenomenon, and it's neither good nor bad. It's just what happens when brains spend a lot of time interacting with other brains trying to make sense of the world. They argue about what's right and wrong, and they work together to try and reach common goals, and our concepts of those things that we're talking about, they expand. One of my favorite examples is the concept of dignity. In Kwame Anthony Apaya's book, The Moral Code, he shows that in the 1500s, people in the West shared a concept of dignity that said some people just had more of it than others, defined as the state of deserving respect from others. To a person in the 1500s, it was literally unthinkable that a person who made candles out of animal fat had as much dignity as a king. But after the Industrial Revolution, certain members of the working class had accumulated great wealth, and they demanded more of a say in politics. And as they got that say, their newfound respect led to a widening of the idea of dignity. And once it encompassed class, it expanded to encompass gender, and then race, and then all of humanity. Once we agreed that every person deserves respect and has dignity by the virtue of their humanity, Ideas like slavery and child labor and so on became difficult to accept as a new form of cognitive dissonance spread through the culture. When we're talking about concepts that creep, um, that can range from very uh, specific kind of narrow, simple things. Like in our case, some of our studies were on the concept of uh, what a color is, like the color blue, to what you described, which is a, a, a much more uh, complicated and rich and uh, um, um, almost philosophical concept, like something like dignity. So that's concept creep. But there's another feature of human cognition that complicates things. 
and that's our tendency to make evaluations of degree or kind not on an objective standard, but by using comparisons. Yeah, so this is probably one of the most uh, fundamental and uh, oldest findings in psychological research, uh, which is basically that when your brain is looking at something, when you're looking at something and evaluating it in any way, trying to decide how big or small it is, how much you like it or not, anything, you're not like a, a computer that has a reliable, objective rating of it every single time. Um, your ratings will change over time based on things about you, and they'll also change based on your surroundings. Uh, so one example um, is about how heavy things feel. Um, there's some classic research in which, um, for example, if you hold something very, very heavy, and then you hold something light, um, the lighter thing will seem way lighter than it would have if you hadn't held the heavy thing first. So that's an example of how you're judging how heavy something is, in part compared to uh, the heaviness of the things you held before, not like a scale would, which where it would just give you the same pounds or um, kilos every single time. We can also see examples of this in optical illusions like the tilt illusion, in which perfectly straight lines appear normal until surrounded by lines at an angle. When the brain looks at these lines in an angled context, they appear as if they shift a bit and they angle in the opposite direction from the surrounding lines. In short, brains are not objective. They make sense of the world by judging phenomena in comparison to surrounding phenomena. And this leads us to another aspect of psychology. Comparison of phenomena also occurs when we notice their relative prevalence. Okay, so when something becomes more rare over time, what does that mean in terms of its context? Because like we just said, it seems like brains judge things according to their context. In one of Lavari's previous studies, he asked subjects to identify threatening faces. Now, when we're asked to do something like this, if we see only one face, we judge it based on our internal estimation of what that face looks like in comparison to some imaginary example of threatening or non-threatening faces. But in the study, people saw face after face after face, one after the other. And what they found was that if people were shown a series of non-threatening faces and then a slightly threatening one appeared after that, people would rate that face as much more threatening than if they had seen a series of highly threatening faces before they saw that same image. Whether or not the face was identified as threatening depended not only on some inherent quality, but on how it compared to other faces in their recent memory. So in the world where threatening faces are very rare, um, any threatening face is going to look more threatening than it would have in the world where there were a lot of threatening faces. There's an example of this from my personal life, which is that uh, I grew up in Pittsburgh, which is a city, but uh, a pretty friendly, smaller city. It's kind of in the Midwest, not quite the east coast of the United States. Um, and it's a pretty friendly place. You know, it's pretty normal there to walk down the street and uh, smile at people. And um, one thing I experienced when I moved to a big city, I went to school in Chicago, um, is that uh, there were fewer people smiling on the sidewalk. It's, it was still a great town, but there just weren't as many people smiling at each other when I would walk down the street. So what I noticed for me personally was that what I would count as a smiling person on the street, a friendly person, was a way more liberal definition in Chicago than it was in Pittsburgh, because I was seeing fewer and fewer friendly people. So even someone who looked kind of friendly um, seemed uh, way friendlier than they would have in Pittsburgh, where everybody was smiling.
So, when these three psychological phenomena combine, concept creep, evaluation by comparison, and the change in prevalence over time, brains do something very odd. And to demonstrate this in the lab, Lavari and his team came up with a really nifty experiment. And you'll hear all about it after this commercial break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all. 
to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. I'm David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. In this episode, we're talking to psychologist David Lavari about prevalence-induced concept change. And right before the break, he was about to tell us about his study. So in our first study, what we really wanted to know was if we took a very, very simple concept, almost the simplest concept we could think of, could we change people's um, threshold for it? Could we change their boundaries that they drew around the concept just by changing its prevalence, how common or rare it was. So what we did in our study was we brought participants into the lab and uh, we showed them a thousand colored dots on a computer screen one at a time. It was a super boring study. They were just looking at dots and for each dot they saw, um, they had to hit one of two buttons. They had to decide, is this dot that I'm looking at on the screen blue or is it not blue? Some of the dots were very blue and some were very purple and the rest were varying shades in between. And so they were looking at these dots, one after another, deciding this one's blue, this one's purple, this one's blue, this one's purple. And what we did is for, for half of the people in the study, over time we slowly decreased the prevalence of the blue dots. We decreased the amount of blue dots they were seeing over time. For half of the subjects, without their knowledge, the dots very gradually changed in prevalence. At the beginning, half of the dots were blue. By the end, only 5% were blue. So if you were in our study and if you were in that condition from your perspective, what it would feel like over time is you were just kind of running out of blue dots to find. Um, they would become very rare. And what we wanted to see was 
would just that mere fact of the blue dots becoming rare change which colors people called blue? So what we found uh, was kind of shocking to us was that as the number of blue dots uh, decreased, people started calling a wider range of colors blue. In other words, they started calling colors blue that they wouldn't have called blue in the earlier part of the study when blue was very common. If you think of these two groups as living in two different realities, one in which blue remained common and one in which, over time, blue dots became rare, one began to change their own definitions of what is and is not blue so that these two groups of people soon had completely different concepts of something that isn't abstract or socially constructed. In other words, they came to disagree at the level of perception itself on something that we would normally consider an aspect of objective reality. And all it took was a small change to their environment. And when it came to color itself, after that change, they couldn't see eye to eye. Another way I like to think about it is if you were in our study and you were in the condition when blue dots became rare over time, imagine you saw a dot that was very ambiguous. It was a color like right between blue and purple, hard to categorize. So basically what we found was at the beginning of the study, when blue dots were very common, you would probably call that color purple. And then by the end of the study, when blue dots became very rare, that's you, the same person, seeing that same color would all of a sudden call it blue. Lavari and his team wondered, could prevalence-induced concept change also change the way people judged concepts like morality and ethics? So they spent a summer creating fake descriptions of studies that ranged from innocuous to, well, unethical. So one example was uh, participants are going to um, be asked to lick a frozen piece of fecal matter. <laughs> and we're going to measure the amount of mouthwash that they use. After. That's so great. again, these aren't these aren't real studies. There's no, there, I can't think of any reason you would ever run that study. The idea was in in the same way that we had this kind of continuum of dots ranging from very purple to very blue. We, in a similar way, wanted to create a continuum of hypothetical studies ranging from very ethical and kind of uh, boring to very unethical uh, and controversial. In the same way they had with the dots, they had subjects rate the studies as either ethical or unethical. And for each one, they had to choose to either accept or reject it as if they were members of a review board. But for one group, the number of unethical studies in the mix was slowly reduced over time. As we slowly decreased the amount of unethical studies you were seeing, you started st calling studies unethical that you wouldn't have before. So in other words, you expanded your concept of what counted as an unethical study um, just because you were seeing fewer unethical studies over time. Lavari and his team showed that if we set out to reduce the number of examples of something in the world, something we feel is problematic, harmful, or dangerous, as we achieve that goal and we see fewer and fewer examples of that thing, Thanks to the psychological phenomena we've described so far, the concept expands to include instances that it previously excluded. And that, as they say, masks the magnitude of its own decline. In the act of 
expanding your definition of something. Of, for example, calling a wider range of faces threatening. Um, what that would seem to do is it would change your perception of how many threatening faces you're seeing. Um, and we think that that can be pretty important in domains in which uh, it's your job to uh, change something's prevalence. Uh, so, for example, um, imagine that uh, you worked in the TSA at the airport and you were in charge of uh, uh, handling security and making sure dangerous people didn't come to the airport. Part of your job is, uh, for example, looking out for suspicious people um, that you think uh, might be a danger that you have to pull over for secondary screening. So, of course, the most important thing you need to do is catch those people. But when you think about it, another part of your job is to reduce the prevalence of those people over time, right? If you're doing uh, your job well as the security officer, um, then fewer people are going to come to the airport who are dangerous uh, because they're going to know, oh, I'm going to get caught. So part of your job is to reduce the prevalence of this thing you're looking for. But what our research suggests, if it applies to a situation like that, is that as you're doing a good job of finding suspicious people at the airport and reducing their prevalence, then in a way that's probably not conscious or intentional, you're going to respond by uh, perceiving and calling a wider range of people threatening than you used to. So even as you're doing a good job reducing the amount of threatening people coming to the airport, um, you're going to see a wider range of them than they used to, and you may not realize how well you're doing at your job. Again, prevalence-induced concept change is neither good nor bad. It's just something that brains do. In some cases, it's clearly very, very good. There are some social problems for which we have decided we must remain vigilant, and our goal is to reduce them to zero, to eradicate them from our societies. And to do that, over time, it's necessary that we become less tolerant of instances of those problems that, in a previous era, may have been considered acceptable or benign. Uh, so I can give you an example. Imagine that uh, you teach little kids how to play the violin. And uh, as part of your job, you have uh, kind of an idea in mind, a concept of what counts as them playing a note out of tune, like a note that's flat or sharp. And, you know, part of the way you make them better at the violin is you point out to your students when they're playing a note that's flat or sharp. So what happens, imagine you have lesson after lesson with these students that you're teaching, and over time, uh, they're playing fewer and fewer notes out of tune, uh, because you're teaching them uh, how to play more in tune. So what you might do then, quite reasonably, is um, you might expand your definition of what counts as a note that's out of tune uh, to point out things to them, like a note that's a little bit flat or sharp that you wouldn't have cared about on the first lesson that they had. Um, and that's not being inconsistent or irrational. That's refinement. That's an important part of teaching. As, as the thing that you're trying to get rid of, flat or sharp notes, gets rarer and rarer, um, you'll point out these edge cases that you wouldn't have cared about before. That totally makes sense. Um, so there are plenty of examples where um, changing your concept when the prevalence changes, we think, uh, can be a good and useful thing. Here's the problem. I think there are also a lot of domains in life in which it's important to try to be consistent over time, right? So imagine if you're an umpire in a baseball game um, or an oncologist uh, deciding uh, whether something on an x-ray is a tumor or not. So in both of those cases, you know, what you call a ball or a strike or what you call a tumor, that should be a pretty consistent decision. And hopefully um, it's not largely determined by how many balls or strikes you've seen as an umpire that day or how many tumors you've seen that day as an oncologist. So we think there are a lot of domains in which it's important to be consistent over time. And if prevalence is changing those domains, we think that uh, people would want to know about it. The most important implication of this research, Lavari says, 
is that for domains in which we are looking to make change, to reduce instances of a social problem or something else that we consider harmful, dangerous, or unethical, is that prevalence-induced concept change masks how good of a job we're doing. That can make it feel as if our efforts are going nowhere. It creates a skewed view of the world in which things that are definitely for sure on the decline, like violent crime, poverty, homelessness, teenage pregnancy, illiteracy, obesity, disease, and so on, it makes them seem like problems that we can never solve or problems that are getting worse. In communication studies, this is called the mean world syndrome. Since the news only ever reports on things that are newsworthy, and often those things are out of the ordinary or threatening or sensational, the number of those things on the news remains constant no matter the actual rate of those things in the real world. Which means the more news you consume, the less realistic your conception of the prevalence of the things on which the news chooses to report. Add to that the very good and noble and worthwhile efforts of those who wish to stamp out the ills of the world and who point to examples of those ills on social media, well, the more you consume social media, the worse the world seems. You can see why, in a recent survey, when 20,000 people were asked, all things considered, do you think the world is getting better or worse? In Sweden, only 10% said it was getting better. In America, only 6% said it was. And in Australia, only 3%. But the truth is, in many areas, though there is still plenty of work to be done, and in some places there are huge, huge social problems, things are getting much better. Our efforts to change the world are working. Now, that doesn't give us permission to become blindly optimistic or to scale back our efforts, but the statistics should give us reason to think that change is absolutely possible. And that if our goal is to make the world a healthier, safer, more educated, and less violent place, we can do that. We shouldn't let the psychologically skewed realities of the mean world syndrome or prevalence-induced concept change dissuade us. It would be a shame if we made a lot of progress um, at addressing problems, um, but then didn't realize it um, and kind of abandon our efforts because by getting rid of it, to some extent, we see it in more places. Um, we just hope that to the extent that we make people aware that uh, the prevalence of the thing you're looking for might be a factor um, and how you see it, um, that that can uh, keep people from um, re not realizing uh, when they're doing a good job at finding something or solving a problem. And the reason that's important that is even if you think there's a lot of progress we still have to make in a lot of areas of uh, life, um, it's important to recognize when things we're trying are working because then you can keep doing them and put more effort and resources into them. So um, to the extent that changing the prevalence makes that harder to see, it's something we would want people to know about.
David Lavari is a psychologist at Harvard. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. If you'd like to find links to everything that we talked about, including some images of the dots, the blue dots and the purple dots, you can find all that at youarenotsosmart.com, where you can also find previous episodes. You can find those previous episodes on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow the show at NotSmartBlog on Twitter, or you can follow me at David McCraney. It's also on Facebook at slash YouAreNotSoSmart. If you would like to support this one-person operation, you can do that by going to Patreon.com slash YouAreNotSoSmart. Pitching in at any level gets you the show ad-free, but at the higher levels, you can get t-shirts, signed books, posters, all sorts of cool stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The interstitial music is by Incompetech. You can find those people at Incompetech.com. This music is Banjo Apocalypse. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.